Welcome to the Harper's Magazine podcast. I'm Chris Carroll, editor of Harper's Magazine. In this week's episode, senior editor Elena Saavedra Buckley speaks with our Washington correspondent, Andrew Coburn, about his cover story for our October issue, Against the Current. Well, hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for being on the Harper's podcast today. Um, We're going to talk about your cover story from the October issue, Against the Current, which details the current field of Democratic nominees for a president and the simultaneous lack of appetite for insurgent candidates that could challenge Biden, um, especially when there's not much appetite for Biden himself. And today, I think we can talk through some of the points that you make in the piece about the resistance to new and exciting candidates in the party, as well as some of the topics that you touch on, like the reasons for Biden's low approval ratings, Trump, and issues that the Dems will rally around in 2024, and what's next for the party more broadly. I thought that since it's just so recent and in the headlines, we could touch on Biden's most recent appearance on the UAW picket line just yesterday with striking auto workers in Michigan. Um, It's quite a significant image to see a sitting president on the picket line. And since much of what we'll be talking about related to your piece is kind of how insurgent candidates can and should push the party further left. Um, I wondered what you thought of that image. Do you think it marks a kind of turn for Biden or a resurgence of what he should have been doing all along? Or are you a little more cynical? Well, um, I, t- I tend to default to cynical. Um, <laughs> I would, uh, I mean, it was, in a way he had to do it because, I mean, people are perhaps already, well, I think he hopes that they're forgetting that his initial reaction to the then pending strike was one of sort of indifference. He said on Labor Day, he said, oh, I don't think it's going to happen. He made sort of very vague statements about his support for the union, which, mm. you know, ignited fury in Michigan and in the UAW. Um, in fact, the report, credible report that uh, Debbie, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell actually called up Steve Reschetti, who was um, one of Biden's closest uh, advisors, and said, are you out of your expletive, expletive deleted minds? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, after that comment, I mean, they were just, it was seen as disastrous for Union Joe to be so sort of, as he likes to call himself, so tepid for this, you know, truly, um, you know, enormous uh, strike action. So, you know, actually popping up on the picket line, I think was his, you know, Fairly, it's a very hard, hard turn to, to mm. actually show up, as you said, it's unprecedented. But I think that's what they felt they had to do. Sure, and I guess it's worth mentioning that you know UAW still hasn't endorsed Biden, um, and that you know Sean Fain has made it clear that the union thinks he hasn't done enough to assist workers during the strike. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how that show of support. Uh, if it really impacts voters or not. Um, You know, I think we'll talk later about kind of what actually has been helping Dems in their races. But um, I'm sure some, you know, Biden optimists are hopeful that this would impact people, maybe especially people who, those kind of rare people who might go from Trump to Biden, especially since Trump is speaking at a shop, but it's a non-union one and at the invitation of management. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, it's Trump all over, you know, fake, fake populism as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, he'll be he'll be he'll wear some. I guess he'll wear a MAGA cap and talk about his love for the working class. But uh, <laughs> you know, right. I think I think I hope. Well, you'd think I one, one should hope that people would know better by now, but the polls seem to suggest that they don't. It's kind of right. depressing. Well, let's pivot to the polls and we'll stay on Biden for a bit. His current status is one that matches where he's been plateauing for a long time. Earlier this week, I think NBC and CNN released polls that show Biden's approval rating hovering toward the 30s. ABC, while it's kind of an outlier, showed him running nine points behind Trump in a forecasted matchup between the two of them. You know, his approval ratings have been pretty dismal for a long time. Um, I guess, open question, how concerned are you about his chances in the general? I go back and forth. Um, you know, on the one hand, you know, those polls are abysmal. You know, he's never been popular. I mean, think back to the uh, 2020 campaign where he was, you know, he was in those early primaries, which he lost decisively in uh, New Hampshire and, and um, the Iowa caucus. Um, you know, people just didn't, weren't turned on. You know, old Joe Biden, he's been around forever. Um, he didn't excite people. It was only when, basically when the Democratic machine, uh, the DNC, decided to throw its full weight behind him. They called up other sort of contenders like uh, Klobuchar and, and Buttigieg and told them to, to drop out. You know, that Sanders had to be defeated at all costs. And, you know, Jim Clyburn, you know, decisively spoke for the Black Caucus, um, got him the victory in South Carolina. I mean, you know, it's familiar history. But, I mean, then, you know, Biden was popular for a while. until I, I think the turning point really came with the Afghan, Afghan pullout, the Afghanistan mm-hmm. withdrawal. I think that's when you see, coincidentally or not, that his polls, which had up till then been pretty good, sort of took a nosedive and never recovered. So... That's, there's that on one hand that, you know, that sort of people might even prefer Donald Trump, God help us, to Joe Biden. On the other hand, I, I think, that, you know, the Biden people reckon in the end when people are faced with Donald Trump in all his awfulness as the candidate, as the stark choice, they will, as they did in 2020, you know, once again, perhaps reluctantly um, pull the lever for Joe. It's, it's, I should say, you know, I mean, think back a little bit of history. I mean, Obama was doing really badly. Right. I was going to bring that up. You know, he uh, his approval ratings were also quite low when he was seeking reelection. Of course, the unemployment rate was higher. He was dealing with the debt ceiling negotiations at the time. And I think the malaise here is a little more abstract. Maybe the economy is much better, as you mentioned in your piece. Unemployment is down. You know, I'd say that compared to some other moments in recent years, we aren't, you know, in the middle of as much of a culture war fracas in, in you know, these weeks and months as some other times. Um, do you think it's just age? Is it a broader ennui? I mean, Biden's age? Right. Um, well, he, you know, the trouble is he, you know, he's really not that old. I mean, he's 80. Um, I'm going to, don't want to. Go talking about my age on the on the air, but <laughs> I'm not that far away. So I've, uh, I'm you know ageism. I'm very anti-ageist. On the other hand, you know he sort of looks. He sounds old. He looks. He sort of. It's um, there's one thing rather. I mean, I, I was told by 
well, it's a secondhand thing, but uh, you know, very credible. A friend of mine was talking to one of the NATO leaders, prime ministers, who'd observed him at the Vilnius uh, NATO summit earlier this uh, earlier in the summer, who hadn't seen him in a year, and he said, "quote He was shocked." unquote, by Biden's sort of deterioration, that he was sort of more out of it, more faltering, which I found that was pretty sobering. And, you know, um, I mean, Biden's always been, I mean, what they politely call gaff prone. I mean, he, like he, maybe it's associated with his stutter. I mean, he's, you know, he's always known as a terrible windbag in the Senate. People would sort of avoid him for that reason. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, now he's started telling the same story twice in cons- consecutive paragraphs. It it is kind of worrying. I mean, I, I um, you know, I know the Republicans are convinced, or many Republicans I've talked to, are convinced that whoever the Democratic candidate will be, it won't be Joe Biden, pointing to his physical deterioration. Um, hmm. It's kind of ironic because you have Trump, who's like, to my mind, sort of visibly insane. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, making mad statements all the time, but he somehow. Although he's almost as old as Biden and is patently sort of unhealthy. I mean, I'm told he can barely sort of needs the golf cart to get across the putting green. Um, And yet he projects energy. You know, that's what Biden doesn't do. I mean, I'm sure Trump, if they ever come to debate, will, you know, repeat his deadly jibe against Jeb Bush, low energy. Um, Right. Uh, and that's what Biden sort of, you know, he's sort of the way he speaks and his sort of faltering. It's, it's not what people want. I think it sort of depresses people. But you know, I, right. I you know, I, mean, I have to emphasize it's a kind of trite conventional wisdom. But it is early days yet. You know, we're already in September, and the election is you know fourteen months away. Right. That's true. Um, I guess to you know, it's 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 tough. I think I think that some of the frustration might be that, you know, Biden kind of even pitched himself as sort of a transitional candidate when he was running. Um, and it's unclear now what that's being, what what is being transitioned to, you know, if we're just talking about his VP, obviously Kamala has worse ratings than he does. He I right. guess, pr- feasibly could bring in a new VP. Gretchen Whitmer, obviously, is somebody that you mentioned in your piece and that others think could yeah, really rally the Democratic base. Um, but I guess I wonder a little more broadly, and then we can kind of pivot to, you know, the challengers that we do have. But do you think Biden is setting the party up for something to come after him? Um, what What is he transitioning to, if anything? Well, I mean, you know, it's a, for many people, the thought that he's, trans, you know, we're transitioning to Kamala Harris is a terrible one. Um, since she's sort of, for some, you know, she just is patently inadequate. I mean, she's sort of, you know, since, as I say in the piece, she's, you know, she she displays incoherence that can't be excused by age. Um, I think, you know, no president, I don't think, really ever wants a sort of a strong vice president mm-hmm. um, because, you know, there's always the chance that the vice president might... You know, people say, oh, I think we prefer the vice president. I, don't, I can't think of, um, I mean, think back to um, George H.W. Bush and Dan Quayle. I mean, mm-hmm. anyone ever thought of getting rid of George Bush? The thought of Dan Quayle was strong disincentive. I, I can't think of one um, where a president has sort of nominated someone 
as a sort of you know a strong who would, could be seen as a strong alternative. I mean, instinctively, no leader wants to sort of have a you know to be encouraging a, a potential rival. Sure. And that's certainly they picked Kamala because she seemed to press you know tick all the right boxes. Woman, black, you know. Um, I uh, didn't bring much in terms of a state because California was obviously democratic anyway. But um, but I have heard that, you know, they gave her all these tough jobs, uh, like solving the immigration problem. <laughs> uh, sure. Please. Um, I think, you know, I suspect a, a sort of slightly malign incentive there to give her something she wasn't going uh, mm. to solve uh, too, too effectively. Um, and I've heard that a lot of the sort of not... Well, I know that a lot of the nasty stories that circulate about Harris or derogatory comments in the press have come out of the Biden wing of the White House. So uh, hmm. well, there you go. Right. You can't have you can't if especially if you have a president who's already not popular, you don't want to add more right fuel to the fire to outshine yeah. him. Yeah. I think how, if Harris had been a brilliant success, if the so-called border crisis had been solved, if you know all the other sure. things she was given to do. Uh, had worked. They'd be saying, you know, dump Joe, let's have Kamala. Right, right. Well, let's pivot to kind of the broader issues that you outline in your piece. Um, Much of what you write about in the cover story is the idea that because the Democratic Party depends on one thing, which is their guy running against Trump, who everyone is afraid of, um, that there's no room made for the left to get behind a truly exciting candidate or to really define itself you know, in a positive sense, and that there's no imagination for an insurgency or a challenger to the incumbent. Um, I wanted to zero in on one of your jumping off points in the piece, which is um, this quote from Dimitri Melhorn that comes from an interview with Ryan Grimm in The Intercept. He's a political donor and advisor to Reid Hoffman. And I wonder if you could just kind of summarize what you talk about with that quote and um some of the holes that you poke in it. Sure. I mean, that's um, what Melhorn says. I mean, and, you know, he really, I quoted him because I think he speaks for a very sort of dominant view in the Democratic Party establishment, and certainly the Democratic donor establishment, which is that, you know, you don't get anywhere by promising people to really to make people's lives better. I mean, what you should do is simply um, tell them that they, you know, the alternative is worse which um, is an infinitely depressing um, <laughs> point of view, right. which is the one they adhere to because that's, you know, great for them because, you know, it means nothing has to change much, you know, um, if the only alternative is is worse and, you know, God has sent them such a patently worse alternative in the form of Donald Trump, um, then, you know, life life is pretty easy and you don't have to sort of really go about you know, solving any of the many and many and abundant problems that you know, most Americans face, or great many right. Americans face. So, and you know, and it's also a very dangerous one. You know, people in the end do, you know, do want the, do hope for things to get better, do want things to get better, like politicians who, you know, credibly suggest they can they can they can affect that. Um, you know, we think of the, obviously the greatest example is you know Roosevelt and the New Deal. I mean, right. people, people like that. It, it seemed to work pretty well. He got elected four times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, uh, 
but it, you know, that's it, it, it just enraged me that that comment. Um, hmm. And you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to offer people you you can't answer something with nothing, which is what they offer to do. Sure. Really- yeah, it's a it's a view that not only depends on, um, you know, the the desire to not change the party much, but also on, you know, extreme polarization or just the the idea that that will continue. Um, and you say in the piece that, you know, you, you kind of make this point that for many people in the U.S., something really bad is already happening. You're pointing to housing issues, homelessness. Um, yeah. A plenty of other ills and you say that you know ideally that should open the breach for a radical initiative for someone to come through and and present sort of a more coherent platform um but the only three candidates that we have that are really trying something out against biden are robert f kennedy jr marianne williamson and then running on the people's party and seeking the green party ticket um cornell west and i wonder if you could kind of run through those three candidates and talk a bit about what what they're offering and and how their campaigns are looking. Right. Well, um, obviously, the one that's gotten the most attention of those three is uh, Robert F. Kennedy. Um, and as I say, you know, he's evoked what is often amounted to sort of kind of a hysterical response. Um, you know, it's his basic promise is to sort of, you know, is is hearkening back to the golden age, at least the golden Kennedy age uh, of, um, you know, his father and uncle who, you know, had appeal, you know, appealed to, you know, you know, bridge that polarization allegedly or certainly in fond memories, though I'm not sure how you'd think back to the atmosphere of just before uh, John F. Kennedy was... Um, was assassinated. The country was pretty polarized then, but mm-hmm. he's appealing to that that he can reunite the sort of bring back the lost democratic voter base, the, the you know the white working class, um, and that he can simultaneously sort of push back against the sort of big government, the you know the censorship, the government control, which was you know demonstrated uh, during particularly during the during the pandemic. Um, and he has a, you know, he has a host of, you know, he's promising to sort of solve housing and um, immigration and all sorts of things. But it's basically that, you know, it's it's the, you know, he's basically appealing to the to that, you know, the the Americans who I say things are going, things are pretty bad already, uh, or pretty going pretty badly, and that he can. Um, that he can he can deliver that Marianne Williamson, who has got much less attention, I think you know undeservedly, um, she has very detailed proposals on all sorts of things. If you go to her website, she you know she's really worked out a whole raft of quite detailed sort of policy proposals on health and on education and on foreign policy and and everything. You know, it's pretty impressive. And uh, as I say, it's you know it's very annoying certainly to her that for various reasons you know the people or not enough people take her seriously certainly not in the media and Cornel West he has the most straightforwardly progressive agenda you know against you know the imperial foreign wars against racism against uh, all the sort of you know the progressive wish list which is to 
sounds like a derogatory phrase. I'm, I'm all for the progressive hmm. socialists. So um, <laughs> I really like pretty much everything he's saying. Well, and you kind of, you, you know, you, you interview Williamson and Kennedy in this piece and um, show some of their reactions to how they've been received by the Democratic establishment. You know, the you mentioned how Williamson in her 2020 bid um or in her 2020, but she, you know, felt like she was kind of in high school almost. She was being treated as pretty unserious by Klobuchar and others. Um, I wonder, you know, for a while there, some wondered if if other more mainstream candidates like Newsom or even Pritzker, especially Whitmer, would emerge to challenge Biden. You note that, of course, that didn't happen. They are kind of falling in line to stay in the good graces of the DNC. Um could you talk a bit about those people? You know, do you think that any of them have the ability to really surge into a popular and exciting position, um, at least by 2028? Ah, by 28. Um, well, they'd have a lot. I mean, the one who's sort of best known nationally is um, is Newsom. I mean, right. by virtue of the fact that, you know, he's governor of this huge state. Um, and he's been also, you know, he's been working harder than the others to keep himself in the news. I mean, by his sort mm-hmm. of, psych, you know, I mean, you could call it grandstanding, you know, his sort of direct attacks on DeSantis, running ads, again, anti-DeSantis ads in Florida, um, you know, offering to debate DeSantis, you know, it's sort of certainly... I think, I mean, I, I mean, I, in the end, I don't think he would do very well, partly because there's so much sort of anti-California prejudice in the rest of the country. Um, plus, you know, California, you know, there's a lot of, it's getting a lot of bad press these days for, you know, its homeless crisis, um, faltering economy, the sort of problems, problems with, uh, on, in Silicon Valley. So, you know, he, he can certainly command a huge amount of money. Um, so, you know, he will certainly be, you'll certainly be hearing from him in 2028, how well he'd do, I'm dubious. Pritzker, you know, Pritzker, you know, has the advantage of being tremendously rich himself. Um, right. so he can, he can, could, could finance a, probably if he wanted to, which he probably doesn't finance a presidential campaign all on his own. Um, and he's been a pretty successful governor. I mean, I certainly don't like a lot of things he's done, like his, endorsement of sort of nuclear resurgence um you know, familiar with the pieces anyone familiar with my work in the in harper's knows that i take a dim view of nuclear power so right. and uh you know his efforts to promote it in in, in, in illinois but you know it's it's he's he's you know he's been quite so good he's been a successful electorally as a democrat which you know is good and then you have Whitmer, who, um, you know, who's been, you know, can take a huge amount of, well, certainly takes and probably certainly isn't deservedly so credit for the, um, for making Michigan, which was, or from, you know, was almost becoming a uh, a red state, um, you know, famously lost to Hillary in 2016, um, you know, now much more solidly blue, Um so and she, you know, she's got this. She projects this sort of practical image. You know, her slogan when she ran for governor first was, you know, "Fix the damn roads." I mean, that sounds like actually that's promising something, which Mr. Mm-hmm. Mohorn probably would disapprove of. But still, and she's a woman now. 
we can talk about the not so latent misogyny in the country. You know, are we, unlike the rest of the Western world, ready for a woman president? Maybe that wouldn't work. I think if any of the sort of, you know, prominent, acceptable to the establishment candidates around uh, women around, um, she would probably do best um, since she sure. would have, you know, left support. Very, you know, very big on climate, which is, you know, such a big issue for the progressive left. Um, and, you know, I mean, sort of covering some of the topics we've already been discussing, you know, there's, we can't, and, you know, up to and including, you know, Biden's chances, we can't ignore, um, or we certainly shouldn't ignore Dobbs, you know, the abortion right. debate. I mean, there was no question that that really swung things in um in the last midterms for uh, for for Michigan, I mean, they, they, I know from you know talking to candidates there at the time that they were, um, um, you know, that abortion was what brought people out, what mobilized women, what mobilized otherwise Republican women. I mean, that's, right. you know, and then as as usual, the Democrat <laughs> the Democratic establishment was kind of slow to catch on. Um, in fact, I can tell you that, you know, in some quarters, amazingly, they still haven't got it. Um, yeah, they were kind of cramming for the test there and with, for the midterms. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you about this later, but I'll, we can bring it up here. Um, you know, you reported for Harper's about kind of the the impact on more local politics that Dobbs had right after it happened and before the midterms. And then, as you just said, that ended up being an incredibly successful if hasty strategy for Democratic candidates around the country, um, especially kind of in light of the low approval rating that we've been talking about for Biden and some of the emptiness that you in this piece identify in the establishment Dems. Do you think that that strategy will work again in 2024? Is that going to be another um, helpful, uh, you know, act, you know, real fear mongering point for for candidates on the left um, or does that or do they need to change their strategy I think I mean you know the, it was a hasty catch-up for them uh, because they you know they, they'd spent a generation running away from the abortion issue mm. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know so terrified and you know the Republicans had done so well out of it um, but as you know Betsy Coffia who was a when I talked to her she was running for the state house in Michigan and won actually going away in a what had been a, a red area. I mean, she said the Republicans were like, you know, were like the dog that caught the car. It was a car full of angry women. Um, and I think, you know, that is still a huge issue. I mean, you've got these since so much, and this is almost going to another subject, but, you know, so much power now with the sort of dysfunction of Washington, of the Congress, as we're really seeing this week, Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, certain degree, the presidency is sort of becoming more and more attenuated. You know, so much, so much of what really matters in politics is happening in the states. Um, the people are terrified. You know, people, I think it's a, a very mobilizing issue. As you know, there are, um, I mean, I can tell you, I'm in Virginia, where I am at the moment. Um, you know, we've got elections coming up this November, and we've got a Republican governor, Mr. Youngkin, who. You know who is you know depending on obviously depends on right wing support as a Republican or the right of the Republican Party he's pledged to bring in you know bans and restrictions on abortion and so 
you know, it's a huge issue, I can tell you, in the campaign that's going on around me right now. Um, so I think that'll, I think it'll endure till next year. I mean, if the, you know, the Democratic sub, Democrats let it slip away, well, they really deserve to lose. Um, mm. It's a huge issue. But sure. you know, there's so much else that can happen, as I said already. I mean, are we going to go into a recession when I... A couple of months ago, you know, when I was working on the piece, I had originally started out thinking, well, it looked like we would. And then everyone, all the sort of pundits started saying, no, it's un- unlikely. Now I notice economic economist pundit opinion seems to be swinging back that, you know, oh, gosh, yes, we are going to have a recession. I think oh, that would affect things. I mean, it's pretty interesting when people ask why they don't support Biden. They talk about the economy, you know, all the, right. as you know, I said, and as you, you know, cited, you know, that the economy, the economy seems to be doing well, unemployment record low, so on and so forth. And yet people are hurting, you know, they're certainly not lying. I mean, there's, um, I mean, they blame inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should mention also an issue which, I mean, an amazing lost opportunity for Biden, which is the... Um, Student loans, you know, which have kicked in right. uh, just now, um, kicked in again. People are having to pay them. And, you know, already that's, you know, there are gloomy pieces from major re- quote, remarks from major retailers like Target and so forth saying, oh, they expect a big hit to their earnings. I mean, it's going to have a major economic effect. Suddenly all these, you know, young and not quite not so young people suddenly having to devote a huge chunk of their income right. to student repayments. And I think if Biden had said on day one, uh, okay, I'm you know, negating student federal student debt. I mean, those people would have voted for him forever, I think. Uh, and right. have, but by sort of shifting and sh- wimbling and wambling and sort of you know shuffling and then coming out with this sort of half measure of just ten thousand dollars and so forth, I think you know he he lost the effect and left himself at the mercy of the Supreme Court, which right. Know, yeah, a lot of these, a lot of these kind of LBJ 2.0 um, moments have kind of slipped from his hands, even though there were there was yeah. a lot of excitement there around for the them. taking, right? There for the taking, right? Well, and, and to shift kind of back to the primary race, um, you know, as of just a few days ago, Politico was reporting that Dean Phillips from Minnesota's third district is considering challenging Biden. Do you think that? His numbers mean that they're that we're going to get more com- competition in the primary than there was when you were writing this piece. After all, um, I think we only have a few weeks before the first filing deadlines for Nevada and New Hampshire, um, so people would have to jump in quite quickly if they were going to. Yeah, well, like ninety nine point nine percent of the people who read that, I said, Dean, who? Um, mm-hmm. You know, unless he falls down the steps of Air Force One. And by the way, you notice he's now taking the sort of luggage steps, you know, a shorter climb. Um, <laughs> I don't see it happening, I got to say. You know, they feel, I mean, I think, you know, their grip people will be sort of operative democratic movers and shakers and donors will be gritting their teeth ever harder, sort of hoping and praying he, you know, he doesn't do something definitive like falling overall. I think they'll stick with him. Uh, I don't, it's getting very late now for any, you know, for kind of insurgency. And, you know, and also the the precedents aren't that, it wouldn't, might not encourage you. Remember, you know, 1980, uh, 1979, um, Teddy Kennedy, you know, Carter was very unpopular, very low in the polls, you know, um, openly, der- I remember, you know, Boston Globe headline, more mush from the wimp. 
you know, uh, it was uh, the wimpy president, America's held hostage, you know. Kennedy thought he, he, had, it, he had it made and, um, you know, Carter crushed him. So, you know, and there's no one, there's no Teddy Kennedy figure. I mean, we talked about Newsom and Whitmer and Pritzker and whoever else, but uh, there's no one of that stature with or without a Chappaquiddick in their background um, right. who's standing in the wings. So I really, I think in the end, you know, unless he's, he's physically sort of gives out, uh, I don't see anyone but Biden being the nominee. Right. Well, you you mentioned in the piece, you know, I think in the piece itself, you are, uh, you know, you don't think that any of the current insurgencies have really a chance. But you note that, you know, in in some cases, insurgencies, even if when they're not successful, have some kind of impact. You cite um, Pat Buchanan's run against George H.W. Bush in 92 and the platform that gave him to give you know, a speech at the convention that has kind of infected the uh, Trumpian uh, GOP uh, in its in its rhetoric. Um, I guess I wonder if you think, you know, do, are, do these insurgencies that we have, are they going to, do they have any impact that could last um, or has the, has the Democratic Party kind of guarded itself against a lot a lot of the impacts that insurgencies can have. I mean, it's worth mentioning Bernie Sanders, obviously, who is someone who has not succeeded in any of his runs, but has certainly inspired a pretty giant leftist, um, and you know, leftist surge in more local candidates and in the squad and other people in Congress. Um, maybe how how open do you think the Democratic Party is to? Um, insurgencies, or at least to being transformed over time by ones that might have been unsuccessful when they happened? I think, you know, I'm always hopeful. As you say, Sanders, you know, has had a, certainly had a huge effect. I should just remind people who <laughs> might not have read my piece, that you know, what Pat Buchanan did in, uh, mm-hmm. in 1992. I mean, it was like, it sounded like, you know, today's Republican Party. He, you know, was culture war, you know, racist, um, anti-establishment, anti-foreign wars, you know, that turned out to be, you know, there was a seed that grew into a, a mighty tree. <laughs> and we have, you know, and we had, you know, uh, however many years it was later, we have Donald Trump. So, yeah, insurgents, I don't think the Democratic Party is, I mean, they've done their best to insulate themselves against that kind of thing. You know, they've had practice. I mean, think of Ralph Nader, you know, who gave them such a, caused such outrage by, in their belief, as I talk about sort of, you know, sabotaging um, Al Gore's chances in 2000. I didn't see them then thinking, I never saw them saying, oh, I wonder why Ralph Nader got so many votes. Uh, maybe we should sort of talk, you know, act act on some of the things he was suggesting. Uh, no, they didn't. They just said Ralph Nader is the devil. And Sanders was different. I mean, they were smarter this time. I mean, they at least rhetorically, you know, they, they, you know, Biden sort of, you know, let it be known, and Biden, you know, they were listening to the progressive, progressive left. They were talking to the progressive Congress, uh, caucus in Congress all the time. On the other hand, you know, they, they retained very firm control of like important things like the. You know the Democrat, the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Caucus, mm-hmm. make sure not too many um, 
you know, progressives, uh, you know, any progressives that could help it, you know, got to run for seats that the Democrats might win. And Melhorn's been very active in that. Um, but as you say, very, very rightly, that, you know, locally, it's had a big effect. You know, we've had a lot of the whole, for instance, another, a related thing that's been going on that doesn't get as much attention as it should, which is the whole, you know, criminal justice reform movement and the election mm. of all these progressive uh, progressive uh, district attorneys around the right. country, you know, pretty much, I mean, every major city, you know, a huge number of major cities, I should say, now have, you know, very, you know, the whole criminal justice system has, you know, has has been shifting, you know, in Philadelphia, in Chicago, in uh, Los Angeles, Orlando, Tampa, you know, it's a, you know, sure. which is a igniting fury among the, um, among the Republicans, you know, because this is such an, they understand very well how an important, what an important component of a mm. political power base this is. So, and I think, you know, we have Sanders in part to thank for that. He was sort of, you know, he made it, he made it res- respectable again, <laughs> if, mm. you know, to be, to be progressive left, I'd say. After. Yeah. And a good reminder that, you know, not, of course, not um, all of our attention needs to be focused on, the executive branch um, and, yeah. and the presidential race. Yeah. Um, well, Andrew, let's end by talking about Trump head-on since we haven't really done it yet just to, to cover our bases. Um, you know, so far his presidential campaign couldn't really be going better. He's kind of crushing the field and he's barely been campaigning. He's going to skip this debate to go to this non-union shop as we discussed in Michigan. Um, but he's also facing the very real possibility that he could go to jail. Um, and so far, the indictments haven't seemed to hurt him. But do you think there's a moment when the calculus shifts and voters start to turn against him if evidence piles up? Or is it water off a duck's back, even if the charges are formalized? Well, it's if it's, if it's you know, water off the duck's back, it's kind of terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> that um, right. uh, I mean, we really are sort of headed into some kind of sort of fascist, era if, if if you know if he, if he sails through to election i i mean i've quoted i did the I think i've used it several times in various pieces of a remark made to me god two years ago now i think uh, by a a very sort of important democratic far you know right wing operator richard vigory who is you know had a huge a huge amount to do with the whole rise of sort of uh, right wing, um, you know, the, uh, using the anti-abortion issue mm-hmm. and so forth. And I remember saying to him, I said, well, you know, um, do you think Trump will be the nominee? And he said, I sure hope not, because he he costs us 20 percent of the Republican vote. And there's, you know, there's always this, I mean, slightly negating what we were saying earlier about the polls, that in the end, you know, people, there's a lot of you know, what has been traditionally the Republican base, you know, outside the sort of hardcore MAGA element that were, you know, when faced with a choice in the polling booth of Donald Trump, you know, this this crook and fascist, <laughs> I don't know, whatever you want to, epithet you want to throw at him, but we all know what he is, you know, that they just won't be able to do it. I mean, the Democrat, you know, the fear is, on the other hand, that a lot of other people who would never vote for Trump will just, you know, can't be bothered to vote for Biden, will stay home, which is obviously the other a very alarming prospect. Sure, even if the DNC is kind of counting on uh, Biden's strength coming from 
people who don't want to vote for Trump, you always worry about that not working. Not voting at all, yeah. Right, right. There's a poll, I saw a poll the other day saying that um, Trump, um, that, you know, people, among the people who didn't vote last time, they, they overwhelmingly support Trump. And they're mistaken hmm. as very gloomy news because, you know, the, the, there's this latent force for Trump. But actually, it seems, I mean, I've been told that the reason is that they didn't vote last time because they believe, like Trump, that the system's completely rigged. So there's no point hmm. in voting. So they won't hmm. <laughs> they, They've been told that again, that again for the last four years. So sure, the logic of the poll kind of breaks down there. <laughs> it totally breaks down. Anyway, right. I find that Well, we'll scary. have to see how he does in New Hampshire, too, you know, along with if Biden can... Um, if Biden can pull out a successful write-in, um, we'll see how what Trump's numbers there are like. Yeah, that's right. true. Well, Andrew, thank you so much um, for talking with me. And I hope that everyone listening reads your cover story from the October Harper's issue against The Current. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $16.97, visit harpers.org save.